Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Good morning to you all. Good to see you. It's always good to be seen these days, right? It's an opportunity again this morning uh, to enjoy spending time in God's Word. I have found that in the past several months, that's the one place I can go is spend time and not be disillusioned and not struggle to figure out where is truth to be found. And uh, so we're going to go there. And enjoy the text again from out of the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7. And we'll be in Matthew chapter 5, in particular verse 4 today. And uh, as we begin to go through, again, continue our time in the, what is called the Beatitudes. And so, if you could turn there uh, in your Bibles at this time, that would be great. If you're new here this morning... We are just, we, we like to stay in the Word, follow it with where it, where it takes us. And, uh, and the Sermon on the Mount uh, was the longest collection of Jesus' teaching put together. And the Beatitudes, which is the first 12 verses of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, was a title given to it. It's not found in the text, but was a title given to it uh, a couple centuries after uh, the time of Christ. And the church has used that title to describe what is God's encouragement towards the type of attitude we should have. And so that's why you get the term Beatitude. So to give a little context, we actually began this series two weeks ago and started in verses 17 to 20 in Matthew chapter 5. And I would like to highlight in particular verse 20. It's an odd place uh, to start when you, you're going to be uh, going through the text from verse 1 of chapter 5 to the last verse in chapter 7 to start in the middle of the chapter, but... I believe it gives us understanding to the Beatitudes, verse 20 does that, and it also gives us understanding to what comes after verse 20, which is understanding the intent of the law. Verse 20 basically says this, it says that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees or teachers of the law, you certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's an absolute statement to the response of, this, of what he said when he says, you know what, unless you rise above what you see, your spiritual leaders of your day, the Pharisees and teachers of the law were their spiritual leaders, and he says, unless your righteousness surpasses them, you have no chance to enter the kingdom of heaven. This would have been like seen as a gut punch, like I have no shot, no chance whatsoever to experience eternity with God if the standard must be higher than those of the Pharisees and teachers of the law. I mean, after all, they're the ones that if it says to fast for a day, they fast for two. If it says to not use certain language, they add more words to what they shouldn't say. If it's to dress a certain way, they would go beyond it and add more things to the way it dresses. And yes, the way they interact with people, it created a separation of, I am more righteous than you. Do not consider me. We shared about what did that look like when Jesus gives a story about when a Pharisee was at the altar praying and so was a tax collector. 
Again, the Pharisee being a spiritual leader of his time and the tax collector being known as the example of what it means to be a stealer, a liar, a turncoat, if you will. And in this story, Jesus talks about how they were both praying to God. But one, the Pharisee, begins with, God, thank you I'm not like the tax collector. I fast a lot. I give a lot. God, you should be impressed by how I live. So therefore, hear my prayers, especially over his. Meanwhile, the task collector in the same room is praying and beating his chest saying, Father, forgive me, for I am a sinner. And Jesus says, which do you think? Which one of these men do you think walked away justified before God or blessed by God? And it was clearly the latter, the tax collector. For his heart acknowledged that he was not worthy of any work of God in his life. So he begged for mercy. But the Pharisee thought, by all the things I've accomplished, God must. God must respond to me. And Jesus says, no way. That's not the one God approves of. You see, we looked at last week as we began the Beatitudes, and, and the Beatitudes begin with the statement of blessed or blessed at, each, at the beginning of every verse. And, and we, as, we, as you study the word, it basically is a bestowment. It's not something that, uh, that we've done on our own. It's a bestowment from God saying, you are approved. You are affirmed. You are the real deal. So if the Pharisees were basically told, their righteousness will not get them into the kingdom of heaven. He's basically saying they're not the real deal. The Pharisees and teachers of the law have missed it. They do not understand what the real thing is, the bona fide, true person of faith. But the word blessed says the one who is approved, the one I see is bona fide, the true, sincere person of faith is blessed. And so in the text, you see that being built up in the, the, the Sermon on the Mount and these Beatitudes. Approved is the one who is poor in spirit. Approved is the one who mourns. Approved is the one who is meek. Approved is the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness and so on. But another thing we learned last week was that we must also receive the Beatitudes as progressive. They go in order. They build on top of each other. If you were to take the beatitude, each one of them, and separate it from the rest, you're likely to misinterpret what it is saying or what it is leading us to do. For example, consider this attorney who made a billboard choosing one of the beatitudes. Now, for those of you that are listening on the radio, this billboard is the picture of an attorney like we would typically see with the beatitude that says, blessed are those who mourn. What's he implying? Well, if you've been in an accident, you're probably grieving the fact that you were injured, grieving the fact that, that you maybe have lost your vehicle because of somebody else's negligence. And he can comfort you by getting you money to pay for all your pain. Now, if you take the beatitude out of context, it would teach you then that blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So basically, blessed are you if you cry. Blessed are you if you grieve. You might be grieving that you didn't get a pay raise this year. You might be grieving that, that maybe somebody died that you were close to. You might be grieving the loss of a friendship. Blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. Now, it's not to say that God wouldn't comfort you in each of those occasions. But that's not likely the meaning of this beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, grieve, cry, over some kind of loss, for they will be comforted. That would be taking it out of context. So, let's read it progressively, the Beatitudes again, receive it as building on top of each other, and then we will look at what does it mean to be blessed or approved of by God to mourn. So let's read, beginning in verse 3. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed, approved, affirmed by God are you when you mourn. When you mourn. Now, to receive it in context, it's the second of the Beatitudes. The first being approved, affirmed. The truly sincere and blessed one is one who is poor in spirit. That goes first. For they will enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, the description last week of the, what it meant to be a poor in spirit is in the Greek, there are two different words for poor. One being basically poor as in being less than somebody else who has a lot. It could be that it's just like you're in the lower part of society, the lower caste part of society. But you're still able to live and, and be able to go forward. This poor, however, this term used in this text is a desperate level of poor. The kind of poor that says you need help. You are begging for help because you may not make it unless somebody else does help you. That's the kind of poor in spirit this is. So that type of energy that says, blessed are the poor in spirit, affirmed are the ones in poor in spirit who say, I am in desperate need of help. You see, you can't possibly uh, experience the righteousness of God and eternity with God unless you are poor in spirit where you acknowledge, I cannot. I cannot on my own achieve anything for myself. I need God's help. I am desperate for God's help. It's that posture by which God begins the journey towards redeeming you. Affirmed, approved, blessed, is the one who begins there, who acknowledges it's not in me. In fact, I need something to come into me. This is totally contrary to the spirit of the Pharisee and the teacher of the law who says, look at me and look at what I've achieved. That's not affirmed by God. In fact, he says, if your spirit is equal to that, you certainly will not experience the kingdom of heaven. So then, if it begins with blessed is the one or approved is the one who is poor in spirit, the next statement is then approved, affirmed, blessed is the one who mourns, for they will be comforted. Again, we got we to gotta understand this a little bit from the original language, and, and the word mourn here comes from the Greek term pentheo. And pantheo, again, means to grieve, yes, to mourn, lament, wail even. But it also means to feel guilt. And so as part of that remorseful grieving, it says that if you grieve in that way where you have remorse over your sinful state, it says you'll be comforted. You are affirmed for being there. You're affirmed for acknowledging that you indeed are remorseful for what you've done. I mean, think about this. In terms of the typical processes that somebody who's going through addiction has to go through, the first step they say for somebody to find healing from addiction is acknowledging you have a problem, right? It's the first step. I am an alcoholic. Or I am a drug addict. First step. But change will not happen 
unless you come to the place of acknowledging remorse for that statement. You see, a lot of addicts come to that place where they're able to say, yes, I am an addict. I am in trouble. But not always do they come to a place of remorse. You see, the next part of the journey is to say, I don't want it. I don't want that state. I don't want to live in that state. I want, I want to be somewhere else. I want to be somebody else. So too is the person who's on a journey of faith with, between them and God where they acknowledge, I cannot. I am in such a bad state. I am a sinner. I am in need of God's work. There is no way I can impress God enough to earn salvation. It's a good place to be. And many people get there. As they hear the gospel, they'll say, yep, I am not perfect. I am a sinner. And God's the only one that could certainly help me. And I've heard people say that and then follow it with this statement. But I still enjoy living the way I'm living. They're not remorseful. They're not regretful yet. So while their, their conscience has been provoked, they now know they're a sinner. They will acknowledge that God's the only one that can help them, but no remorse, no regret, no lament over their state. Blessed, affirmed, approved is the one who is poor in spirit, recognizes they need God, and God says theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, affirmed, approved is the one who then mourns over that state, grieves over it, has re regret about it. Then the promise is, for they will be comforted. Now let me speak to that term. The word comforted here comes from the Greek term parakaleo. And this means to call near, to invite for consoling, to encourage it, it has this energy that says that when God says, blessed are the ones who mourn, those who regret and are remorseful over their state, they will be comforted by me. It is that invitation, I am going to embrace you, comfort you, and console you. The best image I can give to you is imagine this. If you're a parent, you've been there, where your child fell, got hurt, and is crying uncontrollably. And you're going to them and you open your eyes to say, come to your arms. And you say, come to me. The child runs, grabs you, and you hold on to them. And within seconds, you notice that the intensity of their crying is beginning to wane. As they feel safe. They feel like there is now comfort coming. And their perspective begins to change that not all is lost. That's... The type of comfort we're talking about. That when we realize by a remorseful spirit and we have regret for our state, God says, come to me. Come to me. And the embrace heals. It changes perspective. It changes the sense of your, certain, your, certain, your current state. There are statistics, scientific statistics that says that if you receive a hug for more than 10 seconds, your blood pressure goes down. Now, during COVID times, we're not doing a whole lot of hugging, are we? Are you missing getting hugged? Now, I come from a hugging family, and, and I love hugging, and some of you do not come from hugging families. And when I give you a hug, it's about as comforting as hugging a, a stand-up piece of cardboard. You need to work on your comforting skills. The reality is that if somebody willingly embraces a hug, there is something that it does to the body where blood pressure goes down, comfort is received, and it changes the moment. Every one of us has experienced the embrace of someone that heals. If you would say, I have never been hugged in a way that gives me comfort, 
my sincerest, deepest apologies to you. Because I believe it's one of the designs of God that is meant to be a connection between two humans that gives us a little bit of a perspective of what God does on our behalf. Affirmed, approved, blessed is the one who realizes I cannot. And God says, heaven is yours. Blessed, affirmed, approved is the one who grieves over that sinful state, has regret about it. And God says, I will comfort you. Come to me. I invite you, come to me. In scripture, there are many different choices of storylines you could do to, that exemplifies this. And, and I think there's a good one that we can find in the story of David. And so I want us to go to 2 Samuel chapter 12. And we're going to look at how affirmed and blessed one is when they grieve and have remorse for sin. And then how God then encourages and comforts when we realize our sin. The context is David has committed adultery. Now, God does not affirm this in scripture, but David had many wives. He had all that a man's heart desire could be if that was something that God approved of. David had it. Yet God said he was a man after his own heart. And so there was a connection between David and God. In spite of the sins of, of the way he handled himself on some areas. Yet God loved him and approved of his heart. But David crossed a significant line. When he committed adultery with Bathsheba. The wife of one of David's greatest soldiers. Uriah. David got Bathsheba pregnant. Became problematic because Uriah was off fighting battles. Everybody would know that it wasn't Uriah's child, so he had to cover it up. So what did he do? He brought Uriah back from the battles and said, be with your wife, take some time off. But Uriah felt that was wrong for him to leave his, his soldiers, so he never went to his house to be with his wife. This caused a problem for David because now he could not cover over his own sin. So what did he do? He plotted to have Uriah killed on the battlefield, and it worked. So now David is an adulterer and a murderer. He thinks he's gotten away with it now. He takes Bathsheba as his wife, which he was allowed to do at this point, so everybody thought. But God knew and God saw the sin, and he sends the prophet Nathan to David. And Nathan tells a story about a man who took advantage of another man. David was enraged by the story and said, that man deserves to die. And Nathan says, you are that man. David realized he was caught for the sin that he thought he was covering over. So now we read, starting in verse 13, David's response. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth and on the ground. The elders of the household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized that the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he'd washed and put on the lotions and, and changed his clothes, he went to the, into the house of the Lord and worshipped. 
Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. His attendants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now the child is dead, and you get up to eat? He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, and I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me, and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba, and he went to her, made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. Now, some of you are wondering, why in the world would you read that story and read verses 24 and 25 about David now sleeping with his wife and having another child? Well, the names of that child tells the story. You see, in this story, David grieves hard. In fact, when it says that he was in sackcloth and on the ground, that is the site of the uttermost way to prove that you are grieving and wailing. He was remorseful. He had known he had sinned. I mean, imagine, it's one thing to know your child's going to die, but it's another thing to know your child's going to die because of you. Of course there was remorse. Of course there was regret. So, he grieved and wailed. The child dies, and David then has finished his mourning, and he begins to live, knowing that there will be a day he'll be with that child again. But then he has comfort with his new wife, Bathsheba. They have Solomon. They name him that because Solomon's name means peaceful one. The one of peace. Names were given in the Hebrew culture to exp explain the culture or the moment around the coming of a child or the context of the life of the family. So they call them peace. David knows that his family is about to go in great turmoil because that's said by Nathan the prophet. But in this moment, David is experiencing the peace of God. And he calls Solomon, peaceful one. And then God adds a name to Solomon, Jedidiah, which means loved by the Lord. So the context of this moment after telling this whole story is David and Bathsheba are now at peace and God says, I love this child. God was at work. There was a remorse and a regret for the sin, but God was at work to still bring comfort to David who had repented and acknowledged that he had sinned and he had regret over it. And then God's invitation to find comfort led to peace. How do we know this? I want you to turn a little bit more to the right to Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, a psalm written after this moment. So in light of all the sin he had committed, but explaining the comfort he received. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, God, against you and you only have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict. And justified when you judge. Keep in mind, he lost a son because of the judgment of God. You are right in your verdict, God. And justified when you judge. Surely 
I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desire faithfulness, even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Spoken by David after having committed an egregious error that cost not only the life of his child, but also cost the life of a faithful, loyal soldier. All because of his selfishness, his sin, his lust for more. David's remorse acknowledges that there's nothing he can do to earn God's favor back, to be blessed, to be approved. He says the justice of God is worthy. It was fair. But he says, yet hide your face from my sins. Create in me a different heart. Renew your spirit in me. Give me joy again. Help me experience the joy of that salvation again. The comfort of God must have been profound to David. Listen to this verse in Psalm 9.9. It'll be on the screen. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. So says David. Psalm 22, also by David. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. David knew what it was like to be afflicted. And he knew that God's face did not, was not removed from him. And God indeed heard his cry. Psalm 23, verse 4. David also speaking. Even though I walk through the darkest valley. Have you ever been there? The darkest valley? The worst part of your life? I would imagine this moment while he was fasting and praying for seven days, realizing I have committed murder, I have committed adultery, and now my son is going to pay the price for it. My darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod of correction, your staff of authority, they comfort me. Psalm 27.1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? David knew what it meant to be poor in spirit. To realize he couldn't make amends for anything he had done wrong in this life. But David also was remorseful. He mourned his sin. He regretted it. And as a result, he experienced the comfort and embrace of God. There's been a few baptisms we've done in the last few months that have really stood out to me. And the consistency of the story. There was a young man, college student named Shane, who on his way to college this past fall, was riddled with addiction, had a moment where he had had enough and was scared for the decisions he had made. And while in a hotel room on his way to college, opened one of those Gideon Bibles, looked up a passage according to the theme of addiction and discovered what it meant to experience God's grace. If you recall in his testimony, he, he pounded his chest three times saying, God, help me. God, help me. God, help me. 
poor in spirit, regretful, thus approved. And what did he describe? Peace came. He gave his life to Jesus Christ and he experienced peace, the comfort of God. God came to him, rescued him, and embraced him. Another young man, a couple months later, shared his story also and was struggling with a lot of other types of sin of where he was fraudulent towards other people. He stole from them. He shoplifted. He took advantage of people. His life was going nowhere and he realized at a very critical moment he was in trouble. He went on a walk, found himself at a baseball field, the closest place to heaven on earth. And while on that baseball field, he cries out to God, God, if you're there, help me. And what he described was nothing, more, nothing less than a miracle. As the peace of God came over him, the embrace of God, the comfort. And he gave his life to Jesus Christ and was baptized here. Poor in spirit, knew he could not. Grieved, was remorseful. God comforted. Today, we saw the video of Shane and Jen Boyer's story. There is a lot more to that story that we could not have fit into a video for Sunday morning, but you can go on our website and see more of the story when it gets posted this week. But Shane's life weighed in the balance with stage four cancer. He did not have any faith, was not a churchgoer, did not know anything about the truth, was simply scared because death was imminent. He takes his boys to a toy store and meets somebody who knew the peace of God. It led to a year worth of interactions that finally led to the point where Shane was willing to bend the knee and say, I need you, God. His life was so transformed. Again, more of the story. Was so transformed and so different. And the peace was so evident that his wife, Jen, said, I need the same thing in my life. And so she was baptized. They're both now walking with Jesus. And they don't even live in our area. They're from the Quaker town area. Came to a toy store in Lidditz and in, was introduced to a storyline about a savior that can take the most fearful and wretched of a person and transform them. Affirmed, blessed, and approved is the one who realizes they cannot, but God can. Affirmed, approved, and blessed is the one who has regret and is remorseful for all that they've done wrong. For God will comfort. The takeaways are simple out of such a message like this. We begin with acknowledging we cannot. We cannot. We need God's help. We beg God for mercy. We're so poor and needy that we recognize we have to cry out to God for help. And secondly, mournful regret. Mournful regret is literally the beginning of much change in your life. Because as I said earlier, it's one thing to acknowledge you cannot. But until you regret it, nothing will change. So mournful regret is the beginning of much change in your life. And thirdly, God invites you. God invites you to come to him for comfort, to experience that embrace that will begin the change in your life. And just like a good hug can change your sense of your current state and can also change your perspective of the moment and your future, so too can the embrace of God change your current state and change your perspective for that which lies ahead. And lastly, as Shane and Jen Boyer's story teaches us, God uses his blessed ones, his approved ones, his affirmed ones to be his extending arms. 
to those who are needing comfort. We're all in need of that embrace of God. And God provides it, yes, by the Holy Spirit, as what happened with Caden on that baseball field. Yes, by the word of God and the Holy Spirit on that moment in the hotel room with the first Shane. And yes, by a messenger of God, one of the children of God in a toy store in Lidditz. God wants to use you to invite people to experience the comfort and embrace of God. Don't withhold that which could radically transform a person's life. Let's pray. God, I don't want to pretend that there isn't a lot of brokenness here in this room. I'm sure there is. And as David said that he was a sinner in need of your help, even while in the womb of his mother, he was in need of your correction. So too are we. And how dare we that if we've known you for all these years, if we've experienced what it means to be affirmed and blessed, and then we get to that place where we start thinking somehow it's because of us. And we're not humble and contrite in spirit. We've long forgotten that it was you and your work. You approve of the poor in spirit and those who mourned their sin. Renew that spirit in us, God, like David prayed. He knew your salvation. That's why he prayed for that joy to come again. I pray that joy will return for those here in this room that have known you for a long time. But I also pray for those who do not know you, that they will realize they cannot and that you can. And that they will have regret over their life and allow you to hug them and experience your comfort. God, do that miraculous work. I pray in Jesus' name. We want to sing a song that has come up in my life pretty frequently. Times that God has brought it to me as a prayer that I need to pray at times when my sin has caused grief, has caused mourning, has caused me to be in a place where I need to pray these words. So I invite you to remain sitting and just pray this with us as we sing.
likely the most well-known of all the parables that Jesus ever spoke was that of the prodigal son. It takes on new meaning when you consider what it means to be poor in spirit, recognizing you cannot, and then to mourn and have remorse and regret. Consider what happens to him after he has completely destroyed his relationship, so it seemed, with his father by taking the inheritance before his father ever died and then going and spending it on wild living. He spends it all and now he's eating along with the pigs. He was at his worst place. He was poor in spirit. Verse 17, it says in, in Luke 15, says, When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands, uh, hired servants, have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against you and heaven as well. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive and again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The son was poor in spirit. And he mourned. God said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees who say, look at me, I'm enough. You won't get experience heaven. But God loves, affirms, and approves one who recognizes, I cannot. I need God. And then is remorseful, which is then that tender heart that says, now the change can begin. 
And it doesn't say that God just invites into the comfort when Jesus was sharing this parable because the context of the parables, he wanted people to understand the heart of God, what God is like. But God isn't just one that opens his arms to the child that's crying. God is the one that runs after the child, sweeps him up and holds him, and then restores him to the place of sonship, daughtership, right standing with him. I'm so glad that's God because I would have no hope otherwise. Nor would you. Would you stand please? If you would like to talk to somebody further about what it means to have a relationship with the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ, we'll have somebody in the encounter room, which is to my left, your right. They'd be glad to pray with you and talk with you. If you're listening online or, or you are hearing on the radio, please email us at office at lefc.net. We'd, we'd love to engage you and to introduce you to Jesus. To all those here in this room, you're either the prodigal son who's experienced faith, and maybe you experienced your faith a long time ago, but it's been a long time, and you've squandered your inheritance with God. You've been running from him. And it's time to be remorseful and to run back to him. Just know that God's ready. When he sees you coming, he's going to run to you. And for those of you that might be like Shane, Caden, Shane, or Jen, you didn't know God, cry out to him and experience the embrace of God. There will be a peace that you will have never experienced before and cannot explain. To that end, I send you out knowing that God loves you and that our morning will be turned into joy once again. Amen. You are dismissed.